0: Friends, good evening. Good evening. Actually, thank you for coming. Post-COVID, I mean, we just don't know if anybody's coming to any, I sound like James Earl Jones here, like it's (laughs) great. Uh, Post-COVID, we don't really know if people are coming to anything, and you've come, and I'm just delighted. We had we must have had 100 phone calls today saying, is this live streamed? That's how people want everything. And we know a lot of people are live streaming. Welcome to those of you who are joining us uh, that way. We're recording. People will see this. Mark, it better be good. Well, that's what we're counting. uh, With all that going on. And uh, welcome to those of you who have uh, come, and um, uh, I'm up here uh, with uh, Dr. Mark Holland. And yeah, I knew he was going to be at a conference in town over the weekend, and so we got the idea of him staying over a day, and us having this conversation tonight. It's two white guys, but try to overlook that. Uh, We'll try to represent everybody else that we know uh, and love. And uh, I have to say at the outset, uh, two things. Mark and I are not unbiased about the United Methodist Church. That's right. We love the United Methodist Church, we want it to continue, we're not leaving the United Methodist Church, you probably have heard of people who have. This also is not a debate, Uh, Mark could defeat me easily, but it's not a debate uh, tonight. Uh, We're just here to inform you as um, passionately and as um, carefully as we can what's going on in our denomination. Uh, There's a lot of talk out there that's accurate, not accurate, rumor, innuendo, a lot of you have heard stuff from your home church and such things we'll talk about all of that. Uh, But we'll do our uh, best to talk to you. I want to begin uh, by asking if we might bow our heads uh, and pray. Uh, Gracious God, we're uh, grateful for so many things, Uh, your love for us, uh, that we have a church. Uh, You've gifted us uh, with a wonderful church, we're so blessed, we're so fortunate. Uh, we uh, give you thanks for the gift of life and um, uh, that we're able to think together about hard things and still love each other and stay together as a church. We're grateful for that. So be with us this evening. Uh, Give us open minds and hearts and hopefully we'll go out from this place a little wiser uh, than we walked in the door. Uh, In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Also meant to say at the outset that we're talking about a, a uh, difference of opinion within the United Methodist Church. You just have to know this uh, pales in comparison to what's going on in the world today. Many of you have been so kind as to ask me about friends that I have in Israel. And I have quite a few there, and I've been in regular contact uh, with them. Just a dreadfully. Uh, sad tragic situation doesn't look like it's going to get better tonight or tomorrow Uh, much prayer required Uh, we hope that wiser heads can uh, prevail just uh, so painful anyway so i'm up here with uh dr mark holland and mark thanks for being with us uh tonight well thank you i want to thank you
1: uh, dr howell and the myers park family for um hosting this and willingness to give us an opportunity to share i'm doing these programs across the country um, to try to um, inform people about what's going on. I'll, I'll give you my, the end of my speech, which is it's not time to go back to sleep. Um, so that's, the, that's where I'm going to end up. Um, but right now, we really want to give some people some information. There seems to be this feeling that the struggle's over, right, or that we've arrived somewhere. Um, and in fact, we have quite a bit of work left to do. So we're going to talk a little bit about what's going on nationally and globally. And I'm really interested to hear, I mean, your church, you and your church have been a leader in these conversations for a long time. How is your church addressing the um, global conversation around homosexuality and disaffiliations and such?
0: Well, Mark, we're going to get to that. (laughs) I've got a long list of really hard questions to ask you. I only uh, want easy questions, please. So I want to start with something simple. Where are you from? Where'd you grow up?
1: All right. Well, I'm a third generation Methodist pastor from Kansas City, Kansas. Those of you know, there are two Kansas cities, one on the Missouri side, and I'm on God's side of the state line in Kansas. Um, Grew up there and um, served 25 years as a pastor, uh, three years in a rural community, in two rural communities, whose combined population, the two towns were smaller than the high school I'd attended. But had a great experience there. And then I served 19 years at Trinity United Methodist, which is an urban church. My hometown has um, no ethnic majority. We're uh, 40% white, 30% Hispanic, and 26% African-American with 50-some languages spoken in our public schools and um, high poverty rate, high crime rate, a lot of struggles in our city. Um, So we've seen a lot of work and our church worked in the midst of this um, of this urban area to provide a witness that welcomed all people. And I think that was something that was unique in our community and um, not unique in the metro area, but certainly unique in the urban area at that time. So worked for 19 years there, and then I also got involved in politics. Um, I fell off the wagon somewhere, and I served on city council in Kansas City, Kansas, for six years, and I served as mayor for four years. Um, And I just recently ran for U.S. Senate in Kansas. Um, I was the de- Democratic nominee for U.S. Senate in Kansas this last cycle, um, surprisingly lost to a Republican incumbent. In Kansas,
0: shocker! It shocker. is shocking.
1: It is shocking. But I saw him his hand is running, and so congratulations to you as a pastor running for office. So,
0: good luck to you, Reverend Stephanie Hand, who is from the first family of Methodism in the city of Charlotte. She really is so. <laughs> That's great. Well, well, that's great, Mark. Uh, thanks for uh, joining us. And uh, we um, let me talk for a moment, please, because uh, you kind of named. I've been doing this a long time. I have. Uh, we want to ask where the United Methodist Church is now and how we got here. And in, in preparing to talk about that, I thought, man, I have been on personally on a really long journey. It was 20 years ago uh, that I first found myself as a delegate to our general conference. This is a group that meets every four years. We have lay and clergy delegates from all over the world, and we decide the law of the church, and uh, somehow I fell onto the committee that had to deal with uh, what do we do about LGBTQ inclusion in the church. I didn't intend to be there, they just assigned me to it. And I found myself uh, pretty soon making uh, the lead speech when we were uh, working on some legislation on the conference floor. And uh, just been in the middle of it uh, ever ever since then. We had actually a very close vote then. We almost uh, got the church to agree. It was so interesting. Uh, our legislative proposal was saying, you know, I'm at the church, we disagree on this issue. And that, uh, that was defeated by a 52 <laughs> to 48 vote. <laughs> illustrating your point exactly. We do not disagree. 52 to 40 is funny. <laughs> and uh, a lot of it is around, I don't know if you know this, starting uh, not that long ago, the United Methodist Church, our book of discipline, which is the law book of the church, uh, added some language around homosexuality. Nobody thought about it for decades. And they added this language called, we do not condone the practice of homosexuality. And uh, that's been really hurtful language to a lot of people over time. It's odd language. We rarely use a word like condone in the Book of Discipline. I mean, that's, that's a hard word. And then talk about the practice of home, it, it, It's not a practice, but uh, we've had that for a long time. And so then every general conference, we get together and we vote on this again. There are hard feelings and long debates. And uh, the acrimony uh, has gotten worse and worse. Finally, we, we declared a special general conference in 2019 in St. Louis to settle it once and for all. And uh, predictably, uh, how long were we there in St. Louis? I don't remember. Four days. It was a bloodbath. Seven weeks. And uh, we did not settle it once for all. We went to General Conference in 2019 with what was called the One Church Plan. And I was a big advocate of the One Church Plan. I would say myers United Methodist Church is, is actually a One Church Church. Mark, tell them, tell them about the One Church
1: Plan. So in 2000, I've been a delegate since 2000, an alternate and delegate since 2000 to the General Conference. And in 2016, um, we were getting ready to have a, it was melting down. You could feel palpably in the air the tension. And one of the tipping points was a committee had just had a huge raucous argument um, on a piece of legislation that was going to authorize funding to address suicide among LGBTQ youth, because LGBTQ youth have a higher rate of suicide by five or 10 times the the, um, rest of the population. And so we wanted some funding to address that. And that petition to provide that funding was defeated. And there's a point at which if we can't even support anti-suicide measures for LGBTQ youth, there's something, there's a disconnect here that's, that's greater than usual. So we um, asked the bishops to, um, I actually talked to Adam Hamilton about it. Adam's on our delegation. He's the lead of our delegation out of Great Plains. I don't know if you've heard of Adam Hamilton. He's started a small church in Kansas City. <laughs> um, but I talked to him about it. I said, I want to make a motion to ask the bishops to lead us. And Adam said, if you do it, I'll, I'll back it up. So I made a motion to ask the bishops to find us a way forward. And Adam stood up and talked to it as well, and it barely passed. And so the bishops and at general conference, the bishops are great because they just sit there. They don't have a vote. They don't have a voice. So they just sit up there. And the fun part of general conference is seeing which ones fall asleep when <laughs> during the proceedings, but the, uh, the bishops went off and they came back and they said, we're going to do this. We recommend tabling all legislation on homosexuality. We're going to form a commission on the way forward. We're going to call a special session to deal with this. And that commission on the way forward was appointed as about 35 people appointed from around the world by the bishops. They met for 18 months and did a very intentional process. And it was folks on the whole spectrum of beliefs from far left to far right and everything in the middle. And that group came out with a plan called the One Church Plan. But there were about eight members of that commission that could not abide it. And the one church plan was basically to codify who we already are. I like to say the Methodist church is kind of the chameleons of the denominations. You know, in the Northeast, we look a lot like the Episcopalians. And in the South, we look and sound a lot like the Southern Baptists. And in the, you know, in the North, we look a lot like the Lutherans. In fact, I had a Lutheran pastor friend of mine, or a Methodist pastor in Wisconsin, and she did a three-year confirmation class which is what the Lutherans do. I told her kids in Kansas City are so smart, we can do it in six weeks. (laughs) So, but then when you go out to California, you know, the United Methodist Church in California looks a lot like California, (laughs) right? And so the one church plan said, y'all be you, we'll be us, and we'll all learn to live together like we already are. Because I don't know about you, but I've never been in a church where someone said, I'm not cooking a casserole for that rascal because he was too liberal. What? We're not doing that. So we have this, this, this break of asking the church to be who we already are and to codify that. But there are a group of eight that said that's not good enough. We must have rules. We must have trials. We must have a traditional plan. And we need to kick out uh, the gay pastors and their allies um, out of the church. And that traditional plan was presented alongside the one church plan. And the one church plan failed by 50 votes out of 862. Um, And the traditional plan passed by the same margin. I'll talk a little bit about, um, if I can do that now, if you want me to talk about a little bit of how those votes broke down. Um, But it's an an eminently interesting part about what the situation we're facing right now. But I can stop there in terms of that's the nature of the One Church Plan. Yeah,
0: the, and the voting, uh, when we vote, um, yeah, it's interesting the way you put it. Uh, Methodists from California, it's like they're from California, that, that's well put. Um, uh, voting breaks down by region. Voting breaks down uh, often by race. Voting breaks down—it's way you can predict the way that uh, elections in the United States are going to go, except we have, we have a world dimensions of the certain countries, we know how they're going to vote on an issue like inclusivity uh, and so on. So that 2019 conference uh, happened and uh, nobody, everybody was unhappy after that. And so uh, the idea was that we would meet again in 2020. That was our regularly scheduled conference and people thought we will formalize the divorce in the church then. Uh, and of course what happened in 2020 was that COVID descended and so we couldn't meet and we said we'll meet in 2021 and COVID was still around in 2021 and so we thought are we ever going to have this conference to formalize the divorce between Methodists who just can't seem to stay together any longer which I would add um personally Uh, I'm not that interested in the right and wrong of that. For me, this is something that is um, devastating personally. Uh, I've given my life to the United Methodist Church, and I have always made it a point to befriend clergy and laity all the way across the spectrum. I have very conservative clergy friends, very liberal clergy friends, lay friends, And I've made it a point to cultivate those relationships, help those people learn how to talk to each other, how to love each other. And I believe that we can do that. So the idea of a church splitting is just, uh, for me personally, it's just been the most painful thing. And uh, uh, given um, um, given that we couldn't have the conference because of COVID, uh, many churches as some of you have heard about this began to act on a provision that was already in place I'll ask Mark to explain it to you in a minute where churches could meet and vote to go ahead and get out of the denomination and you've heard this term disaffiliation uh, there's a provision in the discipline paragraph 2553 I'll have Mark describe it to you he knows more about the discipline than I do uh, whereby churches can vote to get out now uh, before we turn to that I would say uh, a couple kinds of things one is uh, and I have blogged about I've, so I sometimes I write blogs about what's going on in Methodism and sometimes they're read by you know 12 people and sometimes I'll write one and it's read by hundred thousand people I've written a couple recently that were written by the hundred thousand people and one of them was about voting and why it's a bad idea in a church As Americans, we want to vote. We want to have Robert's Rules of Order and we vote and 50.1% defeats 49.9% and the 50.1% of the people get absolutely everything. Well, in the church, it's just a bad idea, isn't it, for a bunch of reasons. One is a lot of times in church life, I have found a very small minority actually are hearing God's will better than the big majority in the church. So do we always listen to the majority? I I don't always want to do that. Sometimes I find it's the smaller voices that actually are are telling us more of what we need to know about God. The other thing is when you vote, you get winners and losers. And we're a church. We're the body of Christ. We're not a state. We're not a government. Uh, We're a church. And in church, we don't want to have winners and losers. At Myers Park United Methodist Church, we do not wish to have winners and losers by any percentage, even if it's 82 to 18 I don't want 18% of our church to be losers, so voting uh, is just a very bad idea. But churches are beginning to vote, and you have heard of churches that have voted and have left the denomination. Some are leaving to join this new denomination that has formed called the Global Methodist Church. A lot of my friends are now in the Global Methodist Church. Some other churches, are they're just leaving. We're going to be our own independent church. From now on a pastor that I've known since he was a little kid named Arthur Jones has a church in Texas that they just left we're gonna be our own church uh, from now on not be connected to other churches uh, this voting business uh, I don't know about you guys in the room but people that I know have just been uh, emotionally heartbroken by things that they've heard almost every Sunday somebody comes to me and says my home church where I grew up where I was baptized, where I'm married, has voted to leave the denomination. And they're devastated by this. Uh, We've had some churches that have had very close votes. So of course, then you have half the church that you used to have, and the other half of the people are going out trying to find a new church. Uh, It's just such a sad thing. And we've had one church in our conference recently, a pretty large church, Western Memorial Church in High Point. They recently had a vote and narrowly voted to disaffiliate. Well, now the vote is being contended because they're saying, well, they brought in a bunch of ringers at the last minute to give them just enough it's like, oh, my. Why <laughs> like God up in heaven isn't saying, I am so pleased with my children on earth uh, doing these things. Uh, it's absolutely devastating. Uh, I don't pretend to have heard from everybody at Myers Park United Methodist Church because some of you probably don't tell me things that you'd like to tell me but I hope you will always. Uh, I can report this because I kept count. Uh, We have 5,000-something members. I have had uh, the number of people who've asked me, are we going to vote, is three. And to all three of them, when I said, "Mm, no, we're not gonna vote, they all three said, good. And I was happy to receive that. I think our church did a lot of this work years Mm -hmm. ago We had conversations about inclusion, who belongs in our church, what kind of church do we want to be, and Mark, you may not know all this. Marsh Park decided to do the hard thing. It would be easy to say, we're a progressive church, and, and just go be a progressive church. It would be easy to say, we're a conservative church, we're going to go be a conservative church. We decided to do the harder thing, which is we're going to be the big tent church. We're going to include everybody sometimes the church can say we're going to include everybody and that very statement excludes a lot of people we're a church that has said we're going to stay together we're better together we're going to love each other we're going to stay together i'm proud of that it seems to be holding well enough some people a few years back could not bear that the people that i love dearly who have left and have gone to other churches don't think I don't lie awake at night and worry about those things and grieve those things. It's absolutely uh, debilitating to me when we lose one person Mm -hmm. in our church at any rate. Anyway, uh, back up to this provision under which churches can lead. So Mark, tell us about paragraph 2553 and then also just what are the numbers right now across the denomination, churches that have Mm -hmm. actually voted to leave? All right. So I'll start with a little bit about…
1: one of the interesting pieces about why the United Methodist Church is in this place right now and when other denominations have done differently. So um, if you think about it, in the last 12 to 16 years, the Lutherans, Presbyterians, Episcopalians, UCC have all voted for full inclusion in in their denominations. Um, If this were a U.S. only vote in the United Methodist Church, we would have done that 12 or 16 years ago as well. But we have this interesting international notion. So we have 860 delegates. It, it can be up to a thousand, but we have about 860 right now. And the delegates prior to the 1980s, um, prior to the 1980s, the, there were only 6% of the delegates were from outside the United States. And that was largely because when churches came of age, um, when, we'd found, when we'd send missionaries to a part of the world and they would grow to a certain size, When they got to a certain size, they would become an autonomous Methodist church. So all the churches in Mexico, Central America, and South America are all autonomous churches because they came of age before the 1980s and 90s. Um, All of India and China, Korea, are all independent churches. Um, Australia came out of the British church, so we can't help them. They have their own challenges. But um, if you look around the world, most of the world are in autonomous churches, but then in the 80s and 90s, instead of forming new denominations or new autonomous Methodist churches, we started retaining members into the United Methodist Church, and there are three reasons for that. One is United Methodist Church in this country is about 90% white, middle class, and a diverse world church is a better church. I believe that. Um and that was one reason to, to start having more members stay in the church. But the other two required different levels of cynicism. So decide how cynical you're feeling today. One is the church started declining in the 1960s. It actually correlates exactly when my dad came out of seminary. I don't blame him entirely for the decline of the church. Yeah. But when he left Garrett in 1965, things started heading south. But we realized that if if we started absorbing members from outside the United States, we would not be a declining denomination, we would be a growing denomination. The other piece is there are some people at General Conference that realized if we absorb these churches, particularly from Africa and the Philippines, we're going to have some reliably conservative votes to keep the church in the United States more conservative than it would have stayed otherwise. So today, the number of votes from outside outside the United States is 45%. In two years, that percentage will be 55 percent. So, when you think about the voting and seeing in the papers, the United Methodist Church says this, in the United States, it doesn't seem representative. We know that in 2019, two-thirds of the U.S. delegates, who are a little over 500, two-thirds of the U.S. delegates voted for the One Church Plan. Only 10 percent of the delegates from Africa did, and there's 350 delegates from Africa, 55 from the Philippines. So those, um, and some from Europe, those um, votes for the one church, for the traditional plan that ultimately passed, 60% of those votes that imposed the traditional plan on the United States came from outside the United States. And there's a basic fairness issue because there's a clause in in the discipline, paragraph 101, and there'll be a test on this, so I hope you'll write that down. Paragraph 101 has a provision that says churches outside the United States, the central conferences, have the ability to adapt the book of discipline to meet their needs, their cultural needs. That is not reciprocated to the U.S. church. That's a structural problem that we're looking at fixing with this regionalization plan. But the structural problem is the churches outside the U.S. can adapt, we cannot. We cannot impose votes on them, but they can impose votes on us, and that's problematic. Um, but the The paragraph 2553 that you referenced was this paragraph that was built into the traditional plan, and it was called the gracious exit. And the gracious exit was intended for the folks on the far left to use to leave. The traditionalists drafted this. They wanted folks to leave. And I used to say crassly, not that I ever speak crassly in the church. Amen, Pastor? (laughs) Uh, um, I used to say, everybody in the church wants an 80-20 split. We just disagree with which 20% we want to leave. (laughs) So this provision was put in to help the folks on the left to leave and immediately following that vote there were annual conference meetings in the spring in the U.S. in the spring of 2019 where new elections were held for delegates and many of the traditional delegates lost their seats and centrists and progressives were put in. So of the 50 votes we lost by we needed to Flip 26 votes. 26 votes matters. 26 votes. 26, I, I won my first election for city council by 13 votes out of 13,000 cast. Praise the Lord. That's what I said, mandated the people right there. But we needed to flip 26. We flipped 26 votes in those elections in 2019. And then the, folk, the more traditional folks saw the writing on the wall that this was not going to stand, and decided to start using their paragraph 2553 to leave themselves. And that paragraph allows for a suspension of the trust clause. The trust clause means that every United Methodist property is owned in common by the um, annual conference. It's similar to the Catholic structure. Um, We all know we're one divorce short of being Catholic ourselves, yes, if Henry VIII hadn't wanted a divorce, he never would have formed the Church of England. And John Wesley came out of the Church of England and founded the Methodist movement. Um, so we, we have this tradition um, in the church that, that we... Um, I'm losing my train of thought. This happens sometimes. Do you ever lose <laughs> your train nev- of thought? It never happens. It doesn't sometimes. ever happen no. to no. me. Um, what did you say? <laughs> that's exactly right. You're no help at all. Um, no, but this... Um, So this voting, we flipped enough votes to change it, the outcome, and the traditionalists began leaving using 2553. That paragraph suspends the trust clause that that means the church can take their property with them um, for no cost, and they just have to pay the pension liability, and there are federal laws that manage pension programs. And I say again crassly, the tie that binds is not necessarily Jesus, the tie that binds is the $8 billion pension program in the United Methodist Church. And so caring for that money was a big part of 2553. So churches could buy out their pension liability prorated by the pension company, Westpath. They could buy that out, they could take their property, and they could disaffiliate as a one-time opportunity that ends on December 31st of this year.
0: And, and the pension thing, it- it seems like a technicality it's no small thing if you take a church like west memorial and high point they pay into the pension fund every year you know who gets that money is somebody like my father-in-law who used to be the senior pastor of that church if they stop paying that money in who's going to pay the pension for the retired pastors who have served that church that, that's what we're trying to work at, at an equitable way of the pastors that have led those churches wonderfully to still be able to live in their retirement that's right. Inclu- my dad's one. Yeah.
1: Big fan of having the pension plan still working. I'll be there soon. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think this, this 2553, the impact has been that about 20% of the churches, there are 31,000 churches in the United Methodist Church in the U.S. 6,000 of those have disaffiliated. It's about 20%. Um, that will probably grow another couple percentage points. I'd be surprised if it got clear to 25%, but it could. Um, by the end of this year, and then that plan is over. Now, there are ways for churches to leave. uh, The denomination, old school, there are other provisions in the discipline where you can leave, but you have to buy your property. You have to pay for your property. You have to, and pay for the pension liabilities. So it's more expensive to leave, but there are provisions for folks who want to leave yet. My belief is I think every church has probably made up their mind about homosexuality in the last 20 years. And we've either decided we're for it or we're against it, or we've decided we're going to live with people who disagree. And that compatibilist language of being willing to live with people with whom you disagree, which I don't know what your Thanksgiving table looks like. I know what mine does. And we live and love people all the time with very different perspectives, do we not? There's no reason we can't do that in the church, but there is a group that said we can't do that if we are, they will not stay in a church that openly ordains gay and lesbian persons and has um, church weddings. To be clear, it's important to know, there's no one suggesting, mandating every church to do gay weddings or mandating every pastor to do that. Um, Again, the, the ethos in the church is, there are churches where that's gonna happen. As I talk to rural churches in Kansas, do you mind there being a gay pastor in Kansas City doing gay weddings. Well, I don't know, we can't have a gay pastor out here. I say, good news! There is no gay pastor who wants to come out to your town. <laughs> so you're gonna be fine. Um, <laughs> but this, this fear of what was being told people is every church is gonna have a gay pastor. We don't have enough gay pastors to have one in every church, <laughs> um, we just don't. So the question is, are you okay with churches living into their mission field. And that's the question we're coming up to in our next general conference, is another opportunity to ask about regionalization, which is to let the U.S. church be the U.S. church, the church in Africa be the church in Africa, the church in Europe to be the church in Europe and the Philippines, et cetera. That's our next step um, is to see if we can pass legislation that will enable the church to approach it in a new way.
0: I mean, one of the things that we've known for a long time, and this is increasingly the case, is certainly in a mission field like ours, uh, young adults who are thinking about church or maybe have given up on church or would like to go to church, you can't scare up young adults who say, if you guys are against gays, that's the church that I want to go to. You cannot find—that that—that is a tribe of none, right? Uh, what they, what we do get dinged on when you talk to young adults? Why don't you come to church? They say they're cold, judgmental people. They rule out my friends that I love. That that kind of stuff uh, is reported just um, over and over again. It's pale. pale. I, I want to get to what's going to happen at the general conference, but I want to back up and ask this hard question: Why, as you say, we've disagreed about a great many things? So mm-hmm. in Israel right now within Methodism, we have people who are pro-Zionist, and we have people who are pro-Palestinian, and we've lived together with that for years. If we have uh, gun control, we've had differences in the United Methodist Church over that, but homosexuality, that's the one that like, why is it so hard for us to talk about that? I believe
1: it's the culture war in the United States. And I think gender and sexuality are at the core of the culture war. Um, I think that the um, gender roles have changed more in the last 50 years than in the previous 500, um, that the roles that people have in marriage have changed. Um, you know, if you think 200 years ago in this country, a woman couldn't vote, a woman couldn't um, preach, a woman couldn't um, file for divorce on her own. Um, and. With the advent of new laws recognizing women's equality, um, this has become a flashpoint. And the flashpoint politically um, is abortion and guns, nationally, right? And I think it's the yin and yang, the male and female. The female issue is, is abortion, the male issue is gun control. And if you think about it through some people's ears, well, women need authority over their head, which is what the Bible says, something the United Methodist Church has has lived past for 50, since 1956, but a woman's to have authority over her head. You can't um, you can't have a woman's choice, and for the gun control, you can't control men, right? You can't control men's choices. So the in in the larger population, I think those gender roles are spiking, and we're seeing it with um, gay marriage, and we're seeing it with uh, trans rights for um, folks who um, are identifying as a different gender than what they were born. So you have these flashpoints that really cut to the core of traditional values. And there are folks who have a much more traditional value of women's roles, and folks who have a much more v- traditional view. There's a correlation between churches that do not ordain women and are opposed to homosexuality. The United Methodist Church is the largest denomination in the world that ordains women that does not ordain gay and lesbian people. So there is a correlation with churches that have, uh, and it's about how we read the Bible. I think this is a big piece of how we do it. I talk about, I like to say the whole Bible's true. I believe that, the whole Bible's true. Much of it is descriptive truth for what was true for them then, and much of it is prescriptive truth for how we should live today. And I could give you, people who say, I'm into biblical marriage, I could give you several reasons why you're not. (laughs) Not pretty. Um, uh, We'll start with Genesis 30 because you got to unload the whole yeah but truck to get from there to one man and one woman. Um, It's impossible. But the 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 way we read the Bible, the passages that say 252 times that slavery is okay, we don't believe that. We believe slavery is a sin against God. Period. And so even though the Bible validates it, the Bible says women shall remain silent in the church. We don't believe that. We believe that was true for them then, but not for us now. And, the, and folks who support homosexuality view the passages about homosexuality in the same light as we view the passages about slavery and women, that they're no longer true for us today. They're not prescriptive for us today. So that's a different way of reading the Bible. So if you read the Bible this way, then homosexuality is not a big deal. If you read the Bible this way, it's a sin worthy of damnation, and anyone who supports it is going to be damned as well. So it's a very different way of of viewing the Bible, and the Methodist Church forever has had people in the pews with both viewpoints. And that's part of your Bible study. Have you ever been in a Sunday school class? Can I get an amen? Anybody been in Sunday school? Everybody sure could be, couldn't they? Do you have opportunities for Sunday school for every single person? but if you're in a Bible study, you're gonna find out there are people who read that same passage very differently than you. And that's part of the richness of the Christian experience, isn't it? To learn from one another and to wrestle with one another and to love one another in the midst of that. But this issue is really highlighting the differences in how we read the Bible and it's highlighting the differences nationally. I like to say in the, in the politics, the difference between black and white in, in politics is gray. And in the church, the difference between black and white is grace. And in the United Methodist Church, we want to live in grace, um, in the middle of the tension between how people believe. And
0: yeah, I mean, these uh, visceral, I mean, what's more personal, right, than sexuality? It just is, uh, in church of all places, can be hard to talk about. That, while you were talking, I was musing over a couple of things. And then I want to talk about the general conference. One uh, is. Um, This first speech that I was asked to make 19 years ago on the general conference floor, and I knew I had three minutes and they have a clock, and at the end of three minutes, the mic goes off. So I was practicing in the hotel. And uh, I found myself coming up with this thing at the end that I still think is amazing. And what I said then was that for decades, the United Methodist Church has said, we don't condone the practice of homosexuality. And the United Methodist Church beyond that has said many, many, hurtful things to people that you and I love very damaging things I had a woman on my podcast um, a while back a woman from uh, Winston-Salem her son grew up he was the ultimate church junkie Uh, church was his safe place he loved church Uh, but then he came out as a teenager and he told he thought it was the safest place he told his youth counselor that he was gay well the youth counselor said "You're, you're going to hell this is just the worst thing and her son committed suicide because he lost his, state. so uh, terrible things have happened. What I said at that speech at General Conference is the miracle to me is that for years we've said these things and gays have stayed in the church. They still want to be part of our church. They still love the United, I can't fathom why. I have friends, of why do you stay in this church? This church is against you. This church but they've stayed in the church. I think that's just a holy miracle. So many of the gays that I know in United Methodism as a denomination are such gifts. They're such great uh, theologians, thinkers, musicians, poets. We would be so so much such poor without them. That's one thing. Uh, Another thing that's come up, speaking of Bible interpretation, some people have heard this, I just wanted to clarify this while we're together. Some people come to me and have said, uh, my father at my home church, wherever it is in Georgia or wherever they're from, uh, has said that in the name of the church, uh, we're going to take the crosses down and we're not going to believe in the Trinity any longer and we're going to stop reading, the whatever. There's this kind of thing that's going on. So there's misinformation. I would say misinformation actually goes two ways. I tend to notice the misinformation against the United Methodist. But the fact is, a lot of progressive United Methodists have demonized the people who are exiting and have said things about them that are not entirely false. So I have pleaded over and over in blogs that have gone viral is let's go for accurate information and not blast people. Somebody, you know, some uh, some conservative heard about some church in the Midwest trying to reach people who were alienated from the church. They took their cross down from the church, thinking, well, that might help people to come in. and 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 then it became all United Methodists are taking their crosses out of their churches. Anyway, so that misinformation has not been helpful. We're still gonna be Bible people. We're still gonna be Trinity people. We're still gonna be Jesus saves people. We're Christians. We're gonna continue uh, to be Christians always. Um, And then there are probably some people, some of you in the room have heard me tell this. I still think there's something to it. It's not the wisest thing I ever thought of. Uh, but I told this. Uh, Lisa and I saw a TV special a while back uh, called "Finding Harmony," uh, and it's about this music director who goes this goes to Springfield, Ohio, and he's tacking up signs on all on the on the phone poles everywhere, handing the flyers to people. And they say, come and sing with us Thursday night at 7. And so all these people come, conservatives, liberals, black, white, old, young, Democrats, Republicans, and they sing together. And they're really just building this great unity around singing together. And then he makes it possible where they can tell each other their stories. Here you've got this great big conservative guy, and he's listening to a young woman talk about her gender identity. He'd never done that before. But in that setting, he had to hear her story. And to me, when I saw that, I thought, that's the church I dream of us being. Is that we say come sing with us come be with us we will listen to your story we Mm -hmm. we care about you there is a place for you here i think it is a category mistake and the way i put it i don't want to be unkind but i think it's right is some churches think we are to be the world's moral police we've got to tell people out there what's right and wrong and even if we think we should tell people out there what's right and wrong my position is no one Out there is listening. No one outside the church is saying, Church, please tell us what's right and wrong, and we will do as you say. The the tribe of those that is none. And so why do that? Why not try to be the kind of church so just come, come, we want you to be with us. We the more the merrier. We want everyone to know about the grace of God, the love of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's the kind of church that we want to be. Okay. General conference. We're finally going to have it unless we have another descent of COVID. It's going to be in May of 2024. That'll be here in no time. Here Uh, in Charlotte. It's going to be here in Charlotte. And everybody in Charlotte was so excited about that except me. (laughs) (laughs) And it's not because it's going to be a bunch of work for me. The reason is the local press will be in my face day Mm -hmm. and night saying, why are you people debating this thing? That's right. And I'll have to try to answer that question uh, as best I'm able. It's coming to Charlotte, so this is the conference that we have. So, uh, Mark, tell us um, what's going to happen at this general conference? You know, what's at stake? Um, The question was several key things, but, yeah. What's going to happen? I
1: can just tell you my crystal ball is bad. (laughs) Um, So I don't know what's going to happen, but here's what's happening. Here's what's going to be presented. How's that? So, there are, um, there are three major pieces of legislation that could completely reshape our church. Um, the most prominent of them is the removal of the language, um, removing the harmful language, the incompatibility language, the church trial language, basically repealing the entire traditional plan and going to a neutral stance where it will go back to what the Book of Discipline says. Do you know who gets to choose to do a wedding at Myers Park? The pastor. And you know who, after this happens, will be in charge of deciding who gets married at Myers Park? The pastor. Um, And it's the same with the conferences in terms of determining who gets ordained. The responsibility will go back to the boards of ordained ministry and to the local churches to make decisions about this based on their mission context. So removing the language is big, and there's two parts of that. One part are the global social principles. Um, Because in our social principles is where we have the language inserted in 1972 that homosexuality is incompatible with Christian teaching. We need to remove that. It takes a 50% plus one vote. The second, by the way, if you were doing a capital campaign and you got a 50% plus one approval, would you move forward with that? We would not move forward. No way. We want consensus. That's what we're shooting for is consensus. So this... um, Removal of the language, the global social principles is one half of it, and then the second half of removing the language are all the other provisions in the discipline that have them, and there are probably 15, which include a funding ban um, of even, it's the United Methodist version of Florida's Don't Say Gay, um, that you can't fund anything that sounds gay, including preventing suicide among gay youth. So we've got to remove the funding ban. So those. Those pieces of removing the harmful language are one. The other, so the global social principles removing the other harmful language. Those are two of the three provisions. The third provision, and and both of those, I should say, require a majority vote, straight majority vote. Those were likely to get because, as I mentioned before, we have fewer votes. Uh, we have more. We picked up more votes in 2019. We flipped the 26 votes we needed with disaffiliations. There have been a number of delegates, um, traditional delegates, lay and clergy, who have disaffiliated and withdrawn from the delegations, and centrists and progressives have backfilled those. So we have 15% more votes than we normally would. And that, dis- that increase, if we were counting, because your delegates from your country are decided based on population of, of churches, We, we, even with the 20% fewer people in our church, we still have all of their votes. So right now, centrists and progressives have a disproportionate number of votes at general conference, which means we likely have a majority to remove the harmful language and to adopt the global social principles. That's the easy part. That's not easy. But that's the easiest part of the two. The next one is, Regionalization and regionalization requires eight constitutional amendments that decenters right now the United Methodist Church, the U.S. church is the center of the church, and the rest of the world are outskirts in the name of Jesus. Right? So, what this regionalization plan does is it decentralizes the United States, makes us one region among others and we have a regional structure, it also gives every region equal ability to adapt the Book of Discipline to their needs. So the U.S. would gain the ability to adapt the Book of Discipline. Because here's what's true. The United States is done with trials. We're just not going to put gay pastors and their allies on trial anymore. Even Even if the church told us to, we wouldn't do it. In fact, they've told us to, and we're not doing it. The same is true in Africa. Even if we put language in that said you had to ordain gay people, the church in Africa is not doing it. So we need to honor the cultural settings. In fact, of the 26 countries we have United Methodist Churches in, in Africa, 18 of those homosexuality is illegal on some level and punishable by fines, imprisonment, and in three cases punishable by death. So when you talk about ordination and marriage in countries where it's illegal, It's just a people's hair catches on fire, they can't believe it. So we need to honor that. So the regionalization allows that. The challenge with regionalization is it requires a two-thirds vote, because constitutional amendments are a two-thirds vote. Because of our voting at General Conference, we likely could get there. Not only do we have disproportionate numbers of votes, but the number of African churches and delegates has been stepped in over time because if their true population were counted now, we would already be in the minority. So it's been stepped in over time. In 2026, the new count will be the real count. The U.S. will drop by 20% in delegates. Um, The Africa will be fully counted and we'll go from 55% of the votes in the U.S. to 45%. That's a significant flip. Um, The other piece is regionalization requiring a two-thirds vote at general conference sounds hard. The harder part is it has to be ratified by all the annual conferences. It's very similar to our country. If we wanted to amend the the discipline, the Constitution of the United States, every state would have to ratify it, well, a lot of them. It takes two-thirds votes of every annual conference member present and voting across the world to pass that. Now, how hard is that? Regionalization passed in 2008 at General Conference with a two-thirds vote, and it was defeated at ratification. In 2016, we passed a constitutional amendment that said women are equal in the eyes of God to men. That passed at General Conference by two-thirds, it was defeated at ratification. So, ratification's hard, um, and there are people who are leaving our church who want to see it fail. That's not every traditionalist. Most traditionalists leave in the church, bless us. God bless you. You do your thing, we'll do ours. But there are some some of these advocacy groups that are actively coming to general conference to sabotage regionalization because they want to extend paragraph 2553 so more churches can continue to leave for an indefinite period of time and continue the voting, the destructive voting, continue the fight. Most of us believe it's time to stop the fight. We need to end paragraph 2553. We need to do a regional structure. But there are groups actively advocating um, for regionalization to fail. They'll work against it at general conference, and they will work against it in the annual conferences when ratification comes. It's a very heavy lift. It can be done, but if it doesn't pass, we have a whole nother set of issues that James is going to tell us how we fix. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, that gets complicated, Um, and I I think Mark, we've talked longer than I wanted. I want these guys to ask some questions, but um, you know, sometimes you listen to this kind of thing, and I start to think like, Methodists must be crazy. Amen. Most Methodists that I know are nothing like this. Most Methodists that I know, they love their church. They love God. They want to serve the poor. They want to do good in the world. They want to learn about the Bible. I mean, that's what the vast majority of Methodists are like. That's what the vast majority of you are like. In any organization, you have some people who uh, try to bend the organization uh, to their will. So we see this, and we uh, try to deal with it as lovingly and carefully as um is possible. One of the things that, by the way, uh, we talk about who owns the property, one of the things that we clarified before we started our building project, I hope you were attentive to this, is we made sure that property would, would still be this church's property, no matter how the general conference thing laid out, and so we're sure of that, so we're building a building that no one's going to come and uh, take from us. Uh, and the other thing that uh, I sense blowing across Methodism nowadays talk to people all over the country, in some ways, all the stuff's going on, uh, I feel like we're at the most hopeful place that we've been in a mm-hmm. long time. Mm-hmm. I hear young people, I hear new people, I hear all kinds of people they are excited about the future of the church in some ways, so we, we can put this behind us and move forward, but I've sensed a great excitement about the mission of the church and what we can do and our possibilities and our dreams like I haven't heard in a long time. I think it's really uh, a lovely thing uh, that I see that's happening, and we'll get to be a part of that. We're a key church in the denomination. Like Wherever I go, people know this church, uh, and we matter and a lot, of church, a lot of people out there are pretty impressed that we have pulled off what we've pulled off. We're, we're, we're a big church, we've stayed together, we're building, uh, that's unusual. Uh, and I commend you, and I'm certainly uh, proud, more than proud, uh, to have the job of being one of your pastors here. It's a great privilege uh, of my life. Let me ask if you have, uh, it's always risky on this topic, do you have questions for me or for Mark? Again, preferably easy questions. (laughs) I call on David because he's the tallest guy in the room. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) So let's assume the regionalization plan works. So we
2: can still be the United Methodist Church. That's a good question. The
1: question is, if regionalization works, will we still be the United Methodist Church? Yes. If regionalization passes, the United Methodist Church will continue to be in mission and ministry as we are
0: around the world. Um, so, yes, we will retain the cross and flame. The, the realization is interesting, by the way, some we us were sitting at general conference, and I remember one year we were on this long debate over like the exact percentage of the pension payment, you know, for me when I'm 82 years old, and the African delegates are just sitting there, they, they don't have that money, it doesn't impact them in the least. And then I know African d- delegates who will say, you know, the big issue where I am is polygamy. And in America, we, I don't know, we just never wind up discussing polygamy. Not for a few years. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the world really is so very uh, different in ways. And so we think this will enable us to do more carefully located work instead of everybody trying to do the same thing all over the globe. I think it's a wonderful thing. What else? Yes, venture.
1: The 2553, what's the objection to 2553 and continuing it? So there are a couple schools of thought. One of the issues with 2553 is it forces churches into this conversation and to vote. And people don't wanna vote. Uh, Most churches just want to continue loving one another and not have to take sides and be pitted against one another. Um, It's created a lot of angst around the country regionally you're going to see differences there are folks in new york and california who have been ignoring the book of discipline for 30 years and don't really care if people want to leave and let everybody go that doesn't want to be here who wants to hold anybody hostage right if you want to go go there are folks in the south that have been decimated by this and in our conference The Great Plains Conference, where Kansas and Nebraska, we have 1,000 churches, 25% have disaffiliated, so we've lost 250 churches. But that represents only about 4% of our membership and 4% of our budget. They're very small rural churches that have left. We in fact, we haven't lost, we've only lost two churches over 400 in attendance. So it's been all small churches. That's not been true in Texas. It's not, you know, 80% of the churches in Northwest Texas Conference left. Um, Half the churches in Texas Conference around Houston left. Um, Mississippi, Louisiana, Alabama, Florida has lost 35% of their churches. So you have this devastating loss, and there's a point at which people say, let's stop. We need to stop this process because everyone who's upset about homosexuality, has already voted and left. And now what we're getting are the opportunists who say, oh, I can own my own church property, and I don't have to talk to the conference. I don't have to pay apportionments anymore. Uh, We can hire and fire our own pastor. That's the best part of being a Methodist. You can't fire me. You can fight all you want in the parking lot, but you got to talk to the bishop. But people say, well, we want to have say over our pastors and our property. So, we are in this place of opportunism. and of the 6,000 churches that have left, only half of those have chosen to become part of the GMC. Half the churches are just going independent and it's mostly the larger churches. So the, the argument against continuing it is it continues the fighting, people have already made up their mind, it's time to move on with the healing, um, and uh, there, isn't, there, I- there are still provisions once in a while when a church wants to leave the denomination without reopening it. So that's the argument. Whether you agree with it or not is another topic, but those are the arguments that people are putting forward to stop 2553.
2: I two questions. I forgot your
0: name. You told me Gene. when you came in. Gene. Gene. Yeah, sorry, Gene. From Providence. You
2: know, yeah, I know
0: that. Yeah. Um, we one, let anybody in. One on yeah. the social. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs>
2: one on the social. Media.
0: he's asked a long question that you guys couldn't hear very well but it involves the social principles which is part of the preface to our book of discipline where we try to declare who we are with respect to the major issues of the day we've done a radical rewrite of these which we haven't done in a long time we've just kind of barely amended them off and on for a while Uh, and i've worked on parts of that i worked on on a suicide section and a couple of others Uh, so that will be up and i don't know how that vote will go you asked about the palestinian question I don't think we can cover that tonight. That could take like another hour and a half. Uh, but everything comes before the general conference. Everything that the church does is up for grabs at every general conference. So this isn't a conference to decide one thing. There are great many things that we will labor over, including this one thing, but it'll be the one that will get the headlines. So I talked
1: about three different things that I think are important. There will be 5,000 petitions in front of the general conference covering everything from Palestine and Israel, to farming, to industrial usage, to recycling. If it's a topic that a yeah, United Methodist cares about, every United Methodist, I shouldn't tell you this, every United Methodist can submit a petition. To, this one's closed. You can't submit any more for this one. But every United Methodist can submit a petition to any general conference on any topic that you think is important if you want the church to take a stance or you want to change a provision. So there will be 5,000. The the ones, that, the three that I think are structural that will change the trajectory of the church for the good are the social principles, removing the language, and regionalization. The social principles, um, there was a decision eight years ago to start a revision process, and they've garnered feedback from, I think, 3,000 Methodists around the world Um, people in the Philippines, people in Africa, in Europe, in the U.S., all the regions of the U.S. working together to come up with a revised social principles. One of the troubles we've had at General Conference for the last 30 years is every vote becomes a litmus test vote on homosexuality. Regionalization, if you're pro-gay you vote yes, if you're anti-gay you vote no. Social principles, if you're pro-gay you vote yes, if you're anti-gay you vote no. This is how the binary thinking and voting has happened at general conference of every single thing we talk about becomes a litmus test and a referendum on homosexuality. So the global social principles, there are people who are going to come after them because they do take out the language that homosexuality is incompatible with Christian teaching. The revised social principles do not have that phrase that went in in 1972. Ironically, the same year they removed prohibitions for pastors being divorced, They inserted a provision for pastors can't be gay. So we, and I think Matthew seven covers both of those. We'll go into that another time, but the the global social principles are going to be caught up in that argument of it's removing the language and so supporting it is pro-gay and not supporting as anti-gay. It's unfortunate because they're much deeper than that and they're much broader than that and they have a lot of substance beyond that, but that's going to be the issue that's going to be the the fighting point for it. I think the rest of it um, is not as controversial.
0: Ben,
2: James, uh, I understand what you're saying, that the church cannot be the moral police. However, shouldn't the church be the moral guardian?
0: I, I believe that internally we have good cause to teach our people biblical principles and how to live what it means to be holy and so on. yes, clearly.
2: But articulating the what is moral and what is not is not in our job description.
0: So I am um, uh, earlier today, I, I'm doing this series now on how to be spiritual, and one of the things that I was trying to put on paper today, not successfully, is that morality is overlaps with but is not the same as holiness. And in the church, our business really is holiness, to be close to God. That's what I mean. That holiness includes something that's immoral. I think it's a higher standard than mere morality. Um, so. Yeah, so uh, clearly that's in our purview to teach
1: and to talk about. And I would suggest on the right, people are more concerned about individual morality. And on the left, people are more concerned concerned about social justice morality. Right? As a a rule of thumb, I think that that tends to break down left and right. You know, John Wesley talked about the the social gospel of um, serving the community and being biblical in our outlook. Um, and we come to general conference every four years to fight over which is more important. And that's, that's really where we really need to stop the fighting. And I think these provisions give us the path to go back to being the church. As um, Adam Hamilton said at our annual conference in Great Plains this last year, when he was doing our delegation presentation, he said, the church needs to move from being a conflict-centered church to a mission-centered church. And I think we're all ready for that. And I think that mission of reaching people for Christ is really putting these other issues, resolving these other issues so we can move forward.
2: I I wanted to ask, uh, how do you respond to someone who says, oh, we can't have a gay minister in our pulpit? How arrogant are we to tell God who he he can call the minister?
1: Yes, the question was, um, you know, some people will say, well, we can't have a gay pastor in our church. And her comment was, it's how arrogant of us to not to tell God who God can call and not call. Um, The reality is we have gay pastors serving in every denomination in the world right now, many of them effective and competent in their ministry. So there's that's a reality and the question is in the in the united methodist church the rule is don't ask don't tell so as long as you stay in the closet and you're not a self-avowed which means you say it out loud and practicing whatever that means if you're not self-avowed and practicing and you stay in the closet and don't make us uncomfortable then it's okay and we have a lot of that in every church in the in the world and so The change for the United Methodist Church would simply be someone can say out loud, I'm gay, and they can live with their spouse in the church parsonage in a church that's open and welcoming for that. We already appoint, the bishops already appoint, they kind of know what churches are more conservative and more liberal. Y'all are from Charlotte. Do you know some churches that are more conservative and more liberal? (laughs) Right? You already know. And what the bishops try to do is they try to appoint pastors that are gonna be successful in that environment. If, if, you're, if you're a particularly traditional conservative church and you get some fire-breathing liberal in there, it's gonna blow the whole place up and vice versa, right? So we already try to match people with the culture. And um, I think we need to continue to do that because there are churches that are open and welcoming of gay pastors and are ready for that and don't want their pastor put on trial and kicked out of the ministry because other
0: people are uncomfortable with it in their church. Bibb, I'd, I'd add to your question. This was kind of a funny moment, sort of. So this was before COVID. This was ramping up to the 2019 General Conference, and we had a program in here where we had a packed house. where We were describing this one church plan, and um, we had uh, we, we had people submit questions, and. Um, I talked to the guy who's reading the questions and we'd kind of agreed on a couple of questions that yeah, maybe were out of bounds and he asked one of the questions that we had agreed was out of bounds <laughs> and i'm stuck up here and the question that he asked is have we had gay clergy at Myers Park i was like oh but what i said was true and i'll, I'll repeat it and i hope it's okay that i share this I have a long history with this church you know i met lisa here and her her dad was the pastor here and i knew mitch faulkner back then i mean i go way back so i have a lot of history here and what i said in that setting was that in every decade going back to the 1950s this church has had at least one gay pastor now people several people were mortified and said who (laughs) <laughs> who? And most of them I could say, someone that I know you really love and were blessed by. But it was just interesting that I heard myself uh, saying that. The other thing, uh, Mark, I don't, don't want to correct you, but I, I sort of clarify this You'd for be everybody. You're the only one who doesn't, so. <laughs> I get it all the time. Sometimes we, we use these terms liberal and conservative, and it, uh, that always grates on me. Uh huh. Because what we're doing is we're saying ultimate reality are the political realities that we know. That's, that's the ultimate reality. And you have conservatives and you have liberals. Where is the church on that spectrum? I defy that every time. We're not trying to be conservative. We are not trying to be liberal. We're trying to be Christian. And I'm not the greatest Bible scholar, but I'm a pretty careful Bible reader. I take that task and my ordination very seriously, and what I find, without fail, is if we read the Bible very, very seriously, there is some stuff in there that's going to look so conservative, and there's some stuff in there that's going to look so liberal, but it's neither. It's Christian, mm-hmm. and that's just who we're asked to be by God. And and sometimes you don't even recognize it, right? I've noticed this thing forever. Uh, If you're liberal and somebody says something liberal, you don't even notice it, right? It's, It's as if they said, I got up in the morning. Well, when else would you get up, right? But if you're liberal and you hear something conservative, it just makes you crazy and vice versa. So we don't even hear it sometimes. But the truth is, in the gospel, there's some stuff that seems conservative, some stuff that seems You can't say that Jesus, Jesus was a liberal. That's incorrect. Jesus was a conservative. That is incorrect. Jesus was Jesus, and He's showing us the way, the truth, and the life. And we've got to put our political ideologies aside. I warn you about this all the time. These are the great idol. This is the great idolatry mm-hmm. of great. our day. Is our political ideology? We read it. We let it jade how we read church. So then we say, "Well, who are the conservatives and who are the liberals in the church?" Well, we, we're just pe- we're just Christian people. Is who we are I want to share one other story Um, that happened the other day I love this some some of you I'm looking around the room some of you I've talked to about this issue and many of you I've not heard from on this issue I'm happy to hear from anyone on this issue I'd love to hear from anyone on this issue I had a real interesting conversation (laughs) with a young couple the other day they said we've got to come talk to you we're new to the church we love the church and so we sat down and they narrated at length uh, how they had given up on church. They'd kind of given up on God. Somebody said, come to Myers Park. They came here. This church has really spoken to them. They've connected with God. They've recommitted their lives. It, it was lovely. They even said, like, you're just the coolest preacher. I'm like, thank you for coming <laughs> to share this with me. And they said, but when we went to the New Newcomer Orientation, a sense that we got there is that is that you guys might be open to gay people, and we're not sure we can be in a church that's open to gay people. And I said, I, I, I hope you will stay in our church. Uh, we are open to gay people. We have gay members, of course. I hope you will stay in our church, not because we have to agree with one another, but there might be something that God is asking you to learn to stretch to grow you may have something for us that will help us to learn and stretch and grow but you know, just because we're always applying this litmus test somewhere like it, I've told this before it, this, this is just a true thing when I started in the ministry uh, I'm older than you, Mark. Uh, when, when I started in the ministry, if I preached a really good sermon and somebody wanted to pay me the highest possible compliment, they would say, Pastor, you stepped on my toes today. No one says that any longer. Have you stopped te- stepping on toes? Now, <laughs> it's very… people. But the point is, you came to church expecting your thinking to be challenged, questioned, corrected. Now. If somebody comes to church and they really dig my sermon, you know what they say? They say, Pastor, I agree with you. That's a sea change, and I don't think it's a good one. Mm -hmm. Jesus walked around talking, and people didn't say, oh, man, Jesus, I agree with you. They killed him. I mean, you know. Uh, so, uh, that's just something to think about. How is God asking us to stretch and grow and learn through this experience that we're going through? And I'm proud of our church that we're, we're going to stay together and keep talking to each other and do that. Anyway, what else? Yes, George. Uh, the disaffiliations in the church are, of course, having a severe adverse impact upon our larger mission as a church. There's not nearly as much money for it, you name it. Um, we have parents here who just sent their children off to college. You hope there's a nice campus ministry. George, are one of them. Sadie went to college. You hope there's a good campus ministry there. As churches disaffiliate, there's less and less money going to things like this, Right? Uh, when uh, the war with Ukraine, you want to ask me why I love being United Methodist? And I told you all this at the time. Uh, Russia invaded Ukraine. The next day, I could phone the bishop there and say, how can we connect to help? He connected us with churches in Poland. Lisa and I went there. We were funding a lot of the relief work in Poland for people streaming across. Like, I love being a United Methodist. Going forward, there will be less money. For things like that that are so good and are so beautiful and these smaller churches they want to break off and be an independent church they're not going to get diddly squat done they think that's a great idea oh we'll just be an independent church an independent church can't no matter how big can't do that much but we're a united methodist church that is worldwide we can do amazing things together and that's part of my heartbreak and it's not just that i'm losing people that i know but i can see the money shriveling up for things that are really important that we need to get done
1: well we're seeing rural churches in kansas Um, the only church left that's open in the town is the united methodist church because we appoint pastors because attracting and retaining pastors to these small communities is very hard and we also provide equitable compensation to make sure that the pastors are paid at a reasonable level so that they can do ministry out there it cuts into our equitable compensation it cuts into our ability and these churches now are on their own some of them independent and they've already called back their district superintendent and said our pastor left where, where do we get our new one <laughs> so we're working on a reaffiliation process for churches that were sold a bill of goods and didn't realize you mean we're we've left yes <laughs> you've, you've left so this piece of this of The campus ministries, the camping ministries, all these extension ministries that we do and are so proud of as United Methodists are under duress right now because of this. Can I call on Jan? But I'm gonna introduce Jan Lawrence. Jan Lawrence.
0: Jan's a famous person. Jan
1: Lawrence is the executive director of the Reconciling Ministries Network. Let's give her a big hand. Is, her question is, is there legislation addressing churches that want to come back? I don't know. (laughs) I do know. You can make it up. (laughs) I am not opposed to that. Um, I don't know, but I do know this, the discipline already has a practice for churches that want to join. If you want to come back into the denomination, you reinstate the trust clause on your property. You recommit to the United Methodist Church. It's like a member joining. I don't know if you've ever had members at Myers Park that maybe drift off for a season and then come back. They they can just come back, right? They can just come right back. So the reaffiliation process is not going to take new legislation. Now, we do want to have an open welcome sign for folks to say you're welcome back because we want to be a part of the church again. So
2: yeah, go ahead.
0: these guys probably can't hear you but But she's saying if a little church comes back they'd have to accept some criteria if you have to join together with other churches this has to happen anyway (laughs) united methodist church like christendom in america is in decline we forget this we're this big booming church we're growing we're building a building we are such an outlier this just doesn't go on much but so many churches are shrinking so many of our churches all the members are over age 75 So those churches will not continue to exist uh, in the way that they have existed. One of the things that's interesting with the disaffiliations, at least in Western North Carolina, I don't know how it is across the country, is we have more churches disaffiliating than pastors who want to leave. This is true of actually all denominations everywhere. Pastors are on average more progressive than churches. We, and we've known this for years. So in Western North Carolina, one of the things that we're going to have is a bunch of churches are going to leave, but we're going to have a lot of pastors who are left, we're going to have a severe crisis placing everybody in jobs. You know what Whole we's, another problem?: You know what we say in
1: Kansas: What do you call a Democrat in a Methodist church in Kansas? Pastor.) <laughs> 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 That's funny, I don't care who you are. We have a question. You, you had your hand. It's going downhill. We need another question. Mary Helen. <laughs> As someone who works with kids and teenagers in the Methodist Church, um, an exercise we like to do in our youth group here at Myers Park is asking the kids, "What is something you wish adults would do better?" Uh-huh. And nine times out of ten, I get, "I wish the adults would agree."
0: Um, and you wish the adults would, would what? Agree. agree. Would agree. I don't agree with that, Mary Helen. <laughs> Jesus Amen. is Amen. there a, is there a minimum age for delegates no we, um, we have youth we, delegates we have and each. I would say in my lifetime of going to general conference if a youth delegate goes to the mic and makes a speech people stop and listen that's right and there's there's a great old oh, oh guys like me people just yawn through it but when a youth comes up people get really interested and excited and it's got a lot of uh, valency to it
1: the, the criteria yeah. for being a young adult is age 30 and younger and so we do have a number of delegates i'd have to count we have a lot of delegates i would say five percent who are under 30. Um, the challenge with clergy though is in order to get through college and seminary and the ordination (laughs) track to get by the time you're 30 you just got ordained right? Most people, that's like the ordination. And you have to be ordained elder. Old school, I was ordained deacon, um, and then I became an elder. But the the ordination track means that there really aren't any young adult clergy, or there's one or two. I was actually young adult clergy at General Conference my first time, and I turned 31 during the program. So I (laughs) aged out midway through General
0: Conference. Dang it. Uh, Kevin, I saw your hand up back a minute ago.
2: Yes, sir. Specific to Myers Park Methodist Church, do we anticipate changes coming, or do we anticipate
0: maintaining the status quo? Well, we we never want to maintain the status quo. We're always growing and thinking, but I don't see this General Conference uh, changing our direction and what we're about. We've been a welcoming church.
1: I think one of the things that's hit other churches is there are, and there were ads that went up after 2019, where churches, particularly in our urban areas, were negatively impacted by this vote that said we're an anti-gay church. And that had repercussions for people's ministry and what church people chose to visit. And so there were major implications. And you saw, I don't know if you did this in Charlotte, but there were newspapers across the country. I don't know if, if you're young and you don't know what a newspaper is, it's a it's a piece <laughs> of paper that you used to open like this and it was really long and wide, but taking out full page ads in newspapers across the country saying that's not who we are. And I think that's that when pe- when we get in the news, the church doesn't get in the news often enough for good things. What what gets in the news is a good church fight. And I'd like to be out of the news. I think that helps all of our
0: local churches. Glenn. You, if you don't know this, Glenn and Diane have, for their lives, been foreign missionaries and uh, have uh, put the work in abroad for a long time. So We, we love y'all and are glad you're here. Maybe one more question? It's getting late. Monday night football is happening.
2: Yes. I was just wondering if this seems more like a freight train that's coming to the conference. I mean, the change seems to me to.
1: Anybody see it that way? Yeah, the, Her question was, it feels like a freight train is coming and what's going to happen is inevitable. Um, I don't think so. I do think there is an opportunity yet. Most of the people who are coming to General Conference are stay UMC people. And what we describe as compatibilists, you know, in our card it says we're not about who's liberal and conservative, it's about who's willing to live with difference and who's not, right? And I think the majority of people coming to General Conference are compatibilist, willing to live with difference. That's going to change the mood. I'm very interested to see how that changes the mood, because I can tell you it's been pretty hostile at General Conference. It's not been a comfortable environment for the last several years. And it's a political process. People are voting. And, you know, I paraphrase our Lord all the time, where two or more are gathered, there will be politics also, (laughs) right? And so it's a messy political process. And so I don't think it's a foregone conclusion what's going to happen. We do believe, John Wesley believes, that holy conferencing, that's church meetings, talking with one another in church meetings that we've prayed over, holy conferencing is a means of grace, similar to receiving communion or Bible study or worship. If we can get back to that, whatever comes out of general conference is going to be a blessing.
0: So I'll. Reverend Hand.
2: So, so I want to say, um, young man, what's your name again? Sam. Sam, stand up. So, all the things that we're talking about today, I met Sam back there, getting sneaking an oatmeal cookie, just saying. Um, and he came up to me, and we were talking. And he, I asked him, where was he? He said he's a freshman at Appalachian State. And I said, what, well, what are you majoring in? He said, religion. I was like, what? <laughs> A seminary
1: in Kansas City, St. Paul's School the of
2: Theology. Here. <laughs> here's the point of the matter. In the midst of our chaos of the church, this young man still wants to be a leader in the church. And I just give God praise Amen.
1: for you and when you're Amen. Church, and Amen. For you and when
0: you're so two things about Sam. One, Sam... Uh, loves my socks more than the rest of you, because we're uh, we have this Beatles bond. Uh, Sam also, his grandfather uh, Dick Carter was has been our lay leader forever, uh, and passed away recently, and I haven't stopped grieving that yet. Just one of the great, great Christian men, leaders of our church. Absolutely wonderful thing. Uh, I would I would say if if you came tonight and you're experiencing some uncomfortable feeling whatever that is I or any of our pastors would be more than happy uh, to hear from you and for you to share that this is a church for everyone and we're firmly committed to that we're not going to be a church for just you know one kind of person everybody who agrees if everybody agreed there would be a really boring 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 church we don't want to be boring we want to be an interesting place Uh, so please reach out and share that and know that Uh, That's really important uh, to me, to all of us. Uh, And then Mark, just uh, a plug for you uh, in closing. uh, Mainstream UMC, you don't have time for a long sales pitch, but just tell us a little about Mainstream UMC and how they might follow what you're doing in that work. Thank you. So I tried to give everyone a souvenir who
1: came in. So (laughs) if you didn't receive one of the cards, there are some on the back table. There's a sign in sheet if you want more information for the advocacy work that we do. We formed in 2018 to promote the One Church Plan and to try to get that legislation passed. Um, We worked after the One Church Plan did not pass. We worked on the election of delegates um, to shift the mood in the United States, and we have worked actively getting ready. We have several partners. We partner with Reconciling Ministries Network that Jan's a part of, um, and we partner with some other advocacy groups. But our main job is um, PR, of putting out information to people in the pews, who are wondering about what's going on, it's hard to get good information. And the United Methodist News Service is is has a hard time, they don't do opinion pieces, they do a lot about, you know, just things that are happening and it's hard to read between the lines sometimes. So we put out a lot of information through mainstream. Um, we have a sign up, you can sign up with the QR code um, or you can sign up here um, in on a pin. And if you already signed up and you wish you hadn't, you can scratch your name out on the way out. <laughs> um, but We also operate entirely on donations. And so we are an advocacy organization working to hold the church together. Um, We'd love to have your support. Uh, We need folks who can give anywhere from $5 to $5,000. And there are some churches and other groups that are willing to do or able to do more than that. So if you wanna talk about more about how we use that money, how we reach delegates in Africa and the Philippines, how we reach delegates in Europe, and how we communicate to the 500 and some delegates in the United States, uh, we'd be happy to talk more with you about that, but please sign up, follow our work. Uh, we will keep you informed about what's happening at General Conference and really appreciate, again, thank you, Dr. Howell, for having, um, giving Mainstream an opportunity to come and, to, um, and for Myers Park, for your longtime witness of living together with difference right here in Charlotte. It's a great witness to the um, United Methodist Church generally, and I appreciate you all taking the time to host the program tonight.
0: Mainstream's like our church. We work entirely on on donations. Anyway, (laughs) Uh, let's bow our heads and pray. (laughs) Gracious God, we are uh, simultaneously uh, grateful for the church and we pray for the church. Mm. It's your church, it's not our church, it's your church. We want somehow to glorify you by what we uh, do, by the way we live, by the way we love, so that people outside the church will look at us and think, uh, we, we, we want that. We want to be with them. Um, we give thanks uh, to be part of this church. It's, it, it's a cool place. You've made it a cool place. We're just grateful, we're honored, we're humbled. Uh, we pray for the United Methodist Church. Uh, give us wisdom in the days ahead minimize uh, rancor and hmm. maximize love and vision uh, and hopefulness it's a beautiful church it's your church we trust your church we trust you'll do great things through your church i thank you for these people coming tonight they care enough about you and your church to come and try to learn be part of things I, i'm so grateful uh, for each person who's come be with them as they uh, return to their homes uh, for, thank you for those who've watched who are watching It's such a blessing Uh, to be with us, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you, folks. Thank you.